0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Very happy to have you listening, hopefully supporting Counterpunch. Very, very important to keep our spaces in the alternative media as the fascist police state encroaches ever further, as the clampdown on information continues to progress unabated. I think we really do need to consider long and hard how we spend our money on our media. And uh, for those of us who want to support independent media, Counterpunch is a great way to do that. Get a subscription. You'll have access to the brand new subscriber section of the website that will have exclusive content that would have been in the print magazine plus a bunch of other content, including additional podcasts and interviews and a whole bunch of other stuff. So please do look for that and consider getting a subscription or making a tax-deductible donation. You know how to do that, PayPal, and all the usual bells and whistles. Uh, So... Counterpunch has been around for more than 25 years, bringing you excellent content. And for our regular uh, listeners, you already know this, but we try to also spotlight these issues that go under the radar, that get missed, that oftentimes get lost in the shuffle, especially now when we're consumed by virus and pandemic and all of these other issues. And so with that in mind, I wanted to focus on this issue of children and this obviously central question about children immigrants refugees that has been sort of bubbling to the surface throughout this nightmarish trump era and i have on the line with me laura briggs she has written an excellent new book that we're going to talk about today laura is a professor of women gender sexuality studies at university of massachusetts at amherst she is the author of the brand new book Taking Children, A History of American Terror. I highly recommend it. We're going to talk all about it. You can follow her on Twitter at LJ Briggs Laura. Laura Briggs, welcome to Counterpunch. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for writing this very, very important book, obviously timely for the worst and saddest of reasons. So let's get right into the subject matter. I want to ask you, it seems fairly obvious on the surface, maybe what the initial impetus for writing this book was, but let's talk a little bit about that. Trump's family separation policy, the outcry, is that what really drove you to write this book or was that just kind of the entry point?
1: Well, it's interesting you should ask. So I had In 2018, when we first started to hear regularly about Trump putting the children of asylum seekers into – separating them from their parents, putting them in detention, I got invited by um, the Attorney General's office in Washington state to write an expert testimony about – Has the United States federal government ever done this before? And I had written about the involvement of the United States in the taking of children in El Salvador and Guatemala. I had written about the taking of children through foster care. And I had even in 2012, during the Obama administration, written in a book called Somebody's Children that I... Believed that the next crisis on the horizon was going to be the taking of immigrant children. And depressingly enough, that turned out to be correct.
0: One of the important points in this book that I think is immediately going to be uh, appealing to a lot of people listening to us now is the fact that you really go to great lengths showing that the policy that you're talking about, the child separation policy, or rather the family separation policy, that although this is Trump's policy, the the form of immigration enforcement, this kind of really, really nasty sort of policy is not uniquely Trump, that this is in fact bipartisan. In fact, you go into some of the recent history. So can you talk a little bit about a, I guess what we could call a sort of anti-immigrant or immigration enforcement consensus um, among the parties?
1: Yeah, one of the things that happened in 2018 and 2019 was that the Trump administration or Trump in particular got um, started saying, well, the Trump, the Obama administration had the same policy. And um, newspapers started saying essentially correctly that, no, the Obama administration did not try to disrupt the asylum system by separating children from their parents. But that said, it has been a question that our, a set of policies that's been with us since at least the Reagan years in which um, the Reagan administration was the first to take children and put them in immigration detention by themselves, even when they had parents or other relatives in the United States. And so initially what they were trying to do, it seemed to many immigration civil rights attorneys, um, was uh, it was trick parents into coming down to, then it was the INS, coming down to INS detention and using their children as bait. And so what they did was, um, they, the Reagan administration, not surprisingly, it sought to have a much more nuclear family kind of orientation toward who could pick up children. So only parents, aunts and uncles. And if you had a cousin in the country who was here um, with clear immigration status, they couldn't pick them up. And we know a lot about that policy, actually, because it went all the way to the Supreme Court. There was a young person named Jenny Flores who um, was the named plaintiff in well the policy that we all heard about, the Flores Settlement, which was supposed to govern the treatment of children. And but, and under the Clinton administration, the um, INS sought to continue to detain children. Clinton administration was more vigorous even than Reagan in creating an infrastructure to detain immigrants. So this whole securitizing of the apparatus of immigration, of course, started to reach its height under George W. Bush after September 11th, 2001. And George W. Bush was the first to separate the children of asylum seekers from their parents. And it's important to distinguish between asylum seekers from other kinds of immigrants, not because I want to talk about immigrants and bad immigrants innocent immigrants or guilty immigrants or anything like that but the international asylum system was set up after World War II um, to specifically to help states think about the situation of people who were being persecuted as Jewish people in particular were persecuted by the Nazis and so the asylum system essentially says if you have a, a legitimate fear of persecution based on your membership in a certain group, you can request asylum from any, any country that's a signatory, any country that is a member of the essentially the international legal system. And so that's been really important to member states to hold up. And so what George W. Bush... And to some extent, Obama, I'll talk about that in a minute, and very much under the Trump administration, um, has been essentially dismantling the right to petition for asylum by terrorizing adults who sought asylum by punishing them by taking their kids. And the Obama administration initially set out to restore what had been um, a relatively benign, a more benign system that didn't separate children from their families. But in 2014, there was a lot, you remember the waves of Central American children who started to enter the country unaccompanied, unaccompanied minors. And there was a lot of activism on the far right that Obama, I guess in retrospect, understandably, felt threatened um, his presidency and the future of Democratic, um, Democratic Party, capital D Democrat, um, their well-being. And so he began to imprison children coming across the border unaccompanied and holding them in, um, in the same kind of cages in the same place places that the Trump administration ultimately did. The difference, of course, was that these children at least were coming unaccompanied. The Trump administration made them unaccompanied by taking them away from their parents in order to persuade their parents to withdraw their petition for asylum.
0: One thing about the period that you're talking about, the period, um, you know, roughly stretching over the last 30 plus years uh, of immigration policy is that it coincides, and you mentioned this in the book, it coincides with the rise of, um, let's call it the the capitalization of imprisonment, the for-profit industry that the Corrections Corporation of America and all of these type of uh, corporations that now exist essentially to generate profit by to, through detention and imprisonment. And it is in interesting. interesting to me that a lot of these policies do coincide with the rise of that, you know, quote unquote, industry.
1: Well, it's certainly true that particularly under Obama, we saw the intense privatization of immigration detention, far more so actually than um, regular prisons. And we even saw lobbying by private companies to essentially harshen up immigration detention policies in order to um, give them more profit. There's no other way to describe it.
0: I'd like to ask you uh, a little bit about family separation and its uh, role in slavery. How would you say family separation fit into the systemic functioning of chattel slavery in the United States? So you mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois, who described it as an essential feature of slavery. In what way? So
1: slavery was a system that relied on torture of one kind or another in order to control people. Because oftentimes plantation owners in particular were outnumbered by the enslaved people who worked for them. And so they controlled people in various ways. They controlled people through intimidation, threats, limiting their food, through um, actual forms of torture like um, whippings, through poor housing, poor food. But one of the important psychological mechanisms that plantation owners and other slavers used against enslaved people was to threaten women in particular with the loss of their children. And one of the most striking things Martha S. Jones author of Birthright Citizens has said is that while enslaved people feared all of the forms of intimidation that slavers used, the most painful was the separation of families. And so when you read slave narratives, you read Frederick Douglass, you read Harriet Jacobs, you read any of them essentially, one of the key moments in each story is the moment when they realized that their family could be separated, when they lost their mothers, when they lost their children. Those were some of the key moments i think as frederick douglas narrates it we can really see it as a key moment in turning a child into an enslaved person a person that can be enslaved by taking their by taking their kin by terrorizing them in that very very intimate way
0: and what about the relationship uh between slavery and family separation and sexual violence? Because, you know, it it seems, you know, it's intuitive, but you have to sometimes almost think it through how sexual, how slavery promoted and rewarded the kind of sexual violence that would ultimately often lead to family separation.
1: That's right. The, because, because children were property, because offspring were the property of slavers, then sexually assaulting a female slave meant that a, a slave owner increased his property. Um, and that child, the resulting offspring of that union, could be, could be sold away for any number of reasons or could be used to control their mother and it once once the u s stopped um, stopped importing people from Africa to enslave them, then reproduction became essential to how slavery continued to operate, and in fact, in contrast to, say, the Caribbean, where people tended to die young and not to reproduce very often um in the United States, it became consciously and explicitly a system of reproduction that um, that vastly increased the wealth of, particularly in the south, of slave owners
0: through reproduction, through growing the slave population. Sexual violence as a form of capital accumulation. Precisely. And specifically... Um... I think we also maybe famous most maybe most famously or infamously think of the taking of indigenous children by the United States, particularly after uh, the Civil War period. Um, can you talk a little bit about U.S. policy towards indigenous people and the taking of their children? Um, and I guess specifically. Uh, one of the things you talk about in the book that I wanted to get you to elaborate a little bit is how that model that was used on indigenous people in the 19th century really, in some ways, forms the basis of our contemporary immigrant child detention system.
1: Right. So, if slavery was a labor system, um, the struggle over the status of indigenous people was a fight over land. And so, Throughout the 19th century, what settler colonialism rooted in Washington, rooted also in Spain and Mexico, um, sought to do was to take indigenous people's land. And so the Indian Wars throughout the 19th century, culminating in the 1860s, 1870s, um, became sort of the the next racialized war after the Mexican-American War the civil war and the fight to extend the United States across the continent and and as so in the plains in the Lakota regions in the southwest the Apache regions there was this sort of real difficulty in wrapping up those wars. It just went on and on and on. And so what the army sought to do was to find a strategy to end the Indian wars. And reformers, friends of the Indian groups, began to suggest that the best way to do this was to take Indian children and essentially um, assimilate them into US white Anglo settler society through um, boarding schools. And so the, it was the army that ran boarding schools. They drilled children, they put them in, put boys in military uniforms, cut their hair, turned them into essentially so that they would look like soldiers. And this was their notion of the civilizing project. They um, had children punish each other for imagined or real infractions of the rules. And above all, they sought to disconnect them from their kin, disconnect them from a sense of tribal nation, tribal membership, and turn them into little um, Victorian men and women who could be used or hired as servants, could be hired as farm laborers, and girls were taught to sew and clean so that they could be hired as domestic laborers. We think of boarding schools as some kind of school where you might, um, where you might learn reading and writing, but far more it was, a, it was training people into a labor system. And we understand this clearly because in 1928, the Miriam Report, which was one of the only reckonings we've really had with the boarding school system and one that was demanded by Indigenous activists, was um, that they found that children in boarding schools were poorly fed, dealing with epidemic disease. There were many small bodies buried on boarding school grounds. And, uh, and most strikingly, perhaps for um, contradicting our notion of what a school was, many of the children never even learned to read. They were illiterate.
0: There's a lot to say about um, education and the role of education, and I want to continue that on that point and more, including the role of imperialism in this issue. Uh, That and a whole lot more on the other side of the break when I'll continue my conversation with Laura Briggs. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
2: If we meant a god If we meant a god Again now Again now Again now If we meant a god If we meant a god If we meant a If we a
0: And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Laura Briggs. Again, the book, Taking Children, A History of American Terror. Highly recommend you get yourself a copy of the book, especially uh, for those people in your life who, well, who need to hear it, who need to hear the facts, who need to see it for themselves. Um, so, Laura, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the uh, the, the boarding schools, the boarding school system, the impact uh, it had, of course, on indigenous cultures. And you were talking about uh, what they what they weren't learning, in those schools but of course the other sort of the other side of that coin or the complement to that is what they were unlearning the extent to which those schools existed to uh to deprive these children of their uh you know birthrights basically
1: <clears throat> their language their community their kin their sense of culture <clears throat> and one of the we tend to think of boarding schools as something that happened a long time ago. And yet the survivors of the residential school system are still very much among us. They are alive and walking around. The um, residential schools were, um, some of them closed uh, after the Miriam Report in 1928, but many, many of them were um kept around through the 1950s and 60s. In fact, we see um, pan-tribal Indian activism through organizations like the American Indian Movement, the Red Power Movement, arising actually in boarding schools because that was where people came to know each other across indigenous communities. So that's the other thing that I think it's important to say, and many indigenous activists and writers and historians have said about the boarding school system is that while there, was, there is much that's ugly about that history and in fact, we see um, we see its psychological effects that people who went through the residential school system are more likely to struggle with anxiety or a history of drug addiction or a history of alcoholism, and in fact, even children raised by people who lived in the um, boarding schools show those same features. They're more, more anxious, more likely to be struggling with mental health or addiction issues. But the other thing to say that's important about boarding schools is because they became the site of Indigenous survival, because Indigenous life ran through the boarding schools, that people also um, found community and comfort and successes and friendships there, and that that Native teachers began to teach in the boarding schools. So the history of boarding schools is complex and multivalent. The um the thing that's less complicated in a way is that after the after some of the boarding schools began to close and there were more day schools, more kids being raised on reservations in the sixties and seventies, that that's also when we started to see state social workers from the state start going on to reservations and saying oh my God, this is shocking. These people are terribly poor. They're um, insecurely housed. They're insecurely fed. and, And children shouldn't grow up in these conditions. And they began to take kids into foster care, place them in adoptions. And as soon as AFDC, what we might call welfare, or what we have called welfare, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, was extended through the state to especially single moms on reservations that's when we saw the state stepping onto um onto native land and taking native kids and we probably many people probably have heard something about the indian child welfare act which was the result of tremendous activism and Native communities really coming together and people sort of stepping outside of the shame and the stigma that they were made to feel from having social workers and caseworkers involved in their lives and calling them bad parents and saying that they weren't qualified to take care of their kids um, and say, wait a minute, we have a way of life that is important and worth preserving. And child welfare matters are tribal matters. They should not be going through a state child welfare system. And Native sovereignty in some ways, that whole fight for tribal sovereignty in the 60s and 70s really came together in a powerful way around the issue of children and states taking children. Because one of the things that's important to understand about Indian law is that native people belong have um, state-to-state relationships with the federal government. So a tribe like the Mashpee Wampanoag near me in Massachusetts has no relationship with the state of Massachusetts. They might be within its legal boundaries, but child welfare matters should either be a tribal matter or a federal matter, because the tribes are sovereign. And that was a really important and key political and legal point that got fought out in part through child welfare. And we're still fighting about it. The very con- the conservative right-wing Goldwater Institute is still, all these years later, trying to overturn the Indian Child Welfare Act. And the reason they're doing that is not so much because they care, per se, about these cute kids who are certainly photogenic, but they're using them as kind of poster children to undo the fact in Indian law of tribal sovereignty, of a tribe's ability to control its land, its resources. Um, I think we should also point to gaming, um, because that's particularly lucrative and I suspect is at the heart of why we continue to see legal fights over the Indian Child Welfare Act
0: the 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 quest for profit and control is of course, key in all of this. It certainly is with regard to uh, chattel slavery it's certainly with regard to the stealing of Indian land and it's certainly or indigenous land and it certainly is true with regard to u s imperialism in Latin America, which is another area that you focus on in the book and there are countless ways of approaching that aspect of uh this very large and troubling issue but I guess I'll just begin by asking you to explain a little bit about how the situation today that Trump has exploited how that has come to be and sort of the the broad strokes of recent US history in Latin America that has exacerbated or created and exacerbated this issue. Right, how
1: did Central Americans come to be the sort of people that U.S. policy considered people who could lose their children. And that's a story that has its roots again in the Reagan era and before as the United States became increasingly involved in anti-communist wars in Central America and throughout the region, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, um, Soldiers, military and paramilitary, many of whom had a relationship with the U.S. School of the Americas, were involved in the terrorizing of usually indigenous but um, usually indigenous communities in Guatemala, in El Salvador. They were uh, peasants, and they were associated with the resistance. They were considered to be communists and Central American militaries. And paramilitaries, presumably very much with the involvement of United States trainers, the CIA, um, and at any rate with the forbearance of the of U.S. embassies, got involved in taking children as a strategy for terrorizing communities, for breaking the communities that were in resistance to the state that were seen as communist or potentially communist. And we don't, we know a little bit, I think about the fact that that happened in Argentina, but we know a lot less about places where it happened more like El Salvador and definitely Guatemala. And in Guatemala, it was, a policy with resounding echoes from the United States too, in the sense that it was indigenous kids who were separated from their families and communities when families and communities were attacked, killed, wiped out or made to flee by the military. And they would pick up children who had gotten lost or they would just walk up to people's houses and literally go go in and take children and leave in helicopters with the children. Some of them wound up in adoptions in the United States. More of them wound up in the Guatemalan context in other indigenous communities. It's important to Remember that Guatemala is a nation of 14 first languages of many, many different indigenous groups with different relationships to the state. So for example, Ixiles were seen as particularly likely to be communists. They are particularly likely to be involved with the guerrillas, the gorillas. Um And so they would see their children picked up and taken to another community where their children would lose their language, lose their traditional dress. And even though they were half a day's walk away, they might never communicate again with their families. More of them wound up in cities or Latino communities where they spoke Spanish. Um, But throughout the 1970s and 80s children were disappeared and one of the things that's particularly poignant about that is that many of the parents of people who lost their children in the U.S. Southwest at the U.S.-Mexico border were people who had lived through the Civil War and recalled that earlier generation of child taking and in the interim the um the aftermath of the wars in Central America was very much not resolved um particularly in Guatemala where the um the the people who committed genocide or attempted to commit genocide against indigenous peoples stayed in power after the war and the um in more recent years, the neoliberal era has seen the work of the Inter-American Development Bank, the World Bank, really deliberately um, tearing apart the state in Central America. So, if you make if you won't make loans to the national state, but make them to little tiny municipalities, then the as we've seen with trump and covid like devolving power downward has um an ever greater effect on the inability of central states to hold for the center to hold and so what we've seen in honduras el salvador and guatemala is cartels taking over power in small small municipalities and they, and people have fought their own fight against the police in Central America as they increasingly are taken over by the cartels and become a force for terrorizing communities. Some of this may feel familiar in the context of the United States. It's not altogether foreign to us. But the more the cartels took over power, the more they terrorized poor people as a way of getting their money. And the police and members of the cartel also particularly targeted women and children. And so this is why you've seen since since 2000, essentially, but with increasing intensity ever since, in recent years, the waves and waves of Central American migrants trying to escape their police, the military, and the cartels that have been um, terrorizing people throughout the region.
0: Absolutely, and to return to the point we were making earlier about the sort of bipartisan nature of this, I mean, I was very much... Very much paying attention to things, and and you know, uh, in 2009, when the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama supported very much the overthrow of the Zelaya government in Honduras and the installation of a right-wing government in its place. Honduras has since become one of the world's most violent countries, particularly dangerous for women and children. One of the primary sources for the refugees fleeing to the United States. So these aren't simple, you know, abstractions or some kind of you know broad. Strokes of history, very specific and clear political decisions made even in the very recent past that impact all of this.
1: That's right. Plan Colombia under Clinton um, and under the Obama administration, we saw both of his successors, Hillary Clinton and um, Joe Biden, very involved in the region, very involved in giving money to militaries and to police forces that. In the case of Honduras, after the overthrow of Zelaya, um, essentially death squads were reintroduced to Honduras and the military and the, and the police were part of that. Um, and then you see Biden um, and his effort to broker a peace in the context of Central America that would stop the waves of unaccompanied children that were coming to the United States in 2014 um, and disrupting the Obama administration as the right wing became more and more paranoid about these waves of asylum seekers. And so Biden too was part of brokering, um, giving money to, to militaries and paramilitaries, now I have to say that none of them were as bad as Bolton um, in terms of upholding truly corrupt figures in the context of Central America. Um, things have clearly gotten much worse under the Trump administration. But nevertheless, um Plan Frontera Sur, the um, the effort to use Mexican immigration officials to stop Central American asylum seekers from ever reaching the U.S. border. Um, That was an Obama era plan, and Trump has very much gone back to it. People might wonder what happened to the waves of children who were being taken. And there are two answers to that. One is what many of them were returned to their parents. Some of them are still in Office of Refugee Resettlement shelters, but In 2020, we stopped seeing the waves of children being taken. Some of them still um, are separated from parents, but more often what's happening, especially since March, has been that people are being pushed back, kept on the Mexican side of the border. And under the cover of the COVID crisis, the Trump administration has started um, essentially deporting everybody who enters the country asking for asylum. So if it spent 2018 and 2019 trying to dismantle the international asylum system, as it applied to Central American refugees, a movement of refugees that's been in motion, essentially since Reagan, Um, since March, 2020, they have succeeded in stopping Central American migration simply by using COVID to close the borders entirely. If you say if you cross the border and you say I am entitled under international and U.S. law to seek asylum in the United States, they say no, you're not. Basically, they've allowed two people to petition for asylum since March 2020.
0: And what about these horrendous, just awful stories you hear about children taken from their parents and then disappeared into the adoption system, never to be heard from again? This is, I don't even know what to say to something like that, Of just that we know that there are vast uh, historical precedents for that sort of thing, but we hear about such reports even today. Can you shed a little light on if that practice is ongoing? Is it, uh, you know, these evangelical right-wing Christian organizations that are involved in this? How does that work and uh, who's paying attention to it?
1: Well, depressingly enough, Eric, the children who've been adopted, who have been separated from their Central American parents, by and large, were separated from their parents under the Obama administration. It takes a long time for a child to become available for adoption. And those cases that have made the news have been Obama-era cases. The um, evangelical right the, um, that the Trump administration has worked with, uh, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, of course, and Health and Human Services have been taken over by the evangelical Christian right. We talked about them more under the Reagan administration, but they've got a lot more power under the Trump administration than they ever did before. Um, they have certainly played a role in resettling the children. But I think the important thing to say about the Trump administration is that where the Obama administration and its vast immigration apparatus was, was in effect racist, that it punished people who were brown. Their vision of race was a liberal multicultural one. That is, everybody could be assimilated into um, U.S. society, where for the Trump administration, their vision of race and racism is white nationalist. That is, their dream of the United States is that, or their image of the United States is that it's white. Right. We've seen Trump over and over again yelling about black athletes and we're like, what? Why is he doing that? Or now that's really clear. Now that he's sort of decided that where he's going to stake his claim to a second term is in defense of the Confederate flag and Confederate monuments of all things. Um, And why this is important when we think about what's happened to immigrant children is I think it's fair to say that people in the Obama administration very much cared what happened to those children. They cared that they were placed in, um, in decent shelters and ultimately in foster care or adoption. The Trump administration, the Stephen Miller wing of the Trump administration, does not care what happens to those children. That's what's made it possible, uh, if shocking, that for them to lose track of children. to Some of them get put on planes and taken to Guatemala. Some of them disappear through the cracks of the foster care system. Some are sitting in office of refugee resettlement um, shelters in Chicago. But they simply aren't keeping track of them. They're not building a bureaucracy around them. Because they have no vision for the future of those children, except that they're supposed to go away. They're supposed to disappear. And the goal, if the goal is to get their parents to withdraw their petitions for asylum and leave, um, who cares what happens to the children, essentially, is the mindset.
0: My final question has to do with resistance, because you leave, you, you, you leave the reader with this issue of how do we fight back against these horrendous uh, crimes that are being committed against children and against mothers and fathers. And, you know, you talk about the abolitionist movement in the 19th century as kind of forming the basis of the resistance against slavery. You talk about some of the other movements, uh, the American Indian movement and others. Um, I just want to get you to comment a little bit about resistance and uh, some of the ways that people have resisted these forces historically and some of the ways that you think people might be thinking about resistance today?
1: Thank you for asking that, because this is a terribly depressing subject unless we start to think about what are the ways to dismantle this these systems. And just as we have seen over and over again that um, since the beginning of this nation. There have been um, forces seeking to separate children from their parents, particularly their parents of color. At the same time, we've seen people over and over again stand up to the system and stop it and change it. And I think that in the current moment, especially in light of the defund the police movement, the movement for black lives and the mobilization for racial justice, that we can see some of the outlines of what a really effective movement can look like. And yet, the more we focus on the police, we can also lose sight of the less coercive or less explicitly violent, but equally coercive systems like foster care. And We need to keep our eye on what social workers are doing, what welfare workers are doing, the kinds of violence that women and children in particular experience, the disruption of kin and households. And so some of the things that have made a difference are all the the things we've learned from civil rights and other uh, racial justice movements the long history of the black freedom movement. So from mobilizing the ideas through works, through work like podcasts and reading the thinking through clearly what is the foster care system and what is it doing? What is its connection to mass incarceration? It of course is directly every time um, women are incarcerated in particular they are quite likely to be single mothers, overwhelmingly likely. And so every time a woman is incarcerated, it is most likely that children go to foster care or children go to kinship care. We've got to um, we've got to stop saying, don't send the police, send a social worker, unless we're prepared also to keep our eye on social workers. So. Demonstrations in the street, the mobilization of ideas through op-eds, conversation, discussion, organizing in small groups, organizing in local communities. Foster care systems are incredibly local. So people are continually telling us, you know, you've got to stop watching the beauty contest at the level of presidential elections and pay attention to what's happening at the local level. And we that's particularly true when you're looking at foster care, when you're looking at its relationship to schools and we've got to stand up to it at every level. Some of the most effective things that people have done. When we look at the 60s and 70s, we can see um, the mobilization to feed impoverished mothers and kids when the state cut off their welfare checks. and, as a result of them therefore, being poor or homeless, then trying to take their kids, so systems of mutual aid, challenging um challenging schools and challenging social workers to um we've got to end foster care as a system of child taking stop seeing it as a essentially benevolent children system that rescues children from bad family situations. We need to give people access to food, housing, and if um, where addiction is an issue, to um, drug addiction count, um, treatment and alcoholism treatment.
0: Indeed. Well, thank you for thank you for giving me your time this evening and for this very very important book. Again, the book Taking Children: A History of American Terror. Laura Briggs has been my guest today. Laura, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Again, follow all of Laura's work. You can follow her on Twitter at LJ Briggs, Laura. And of course, get yourself a copy of the book. Get it for a friend, a loved one, uh, an enemy, whoever you think is appropriate. And uh, thank you again, as always, for supporting and listening to Counterpunch Radio and Counterpunch. And we'll talk again next week.